Well, last week we entertained the question, how do we know that anything is going on behind the scenes? Say, in a trial, things are wrong, things are bad, things are hard. How do we know that God is giving strength to our hearts? He's giving wisdom. How do we know that he's granting comfort and putting peace within us? How do we know that he's even the one changing circumstances where that happens? I said last week, we Christians fight to believe that, and we fight to live like that's true. We believe it, but we pray, Lord, help my unbelief. So we looked at Psalm 118 for help. Well, Psalms 127 and 128 address that same very question, and they do so quite directly. Psalms 127 and 128 go together. They're sort of sister psalms. And they show us several vivid, practical examples. We could say everyday examples of where the Lord is at work and how the Lord is at work, what he's doing behind the scenes. If I asked you, of what does life consist? And I don't mean what is it about or what's the meaning of life. But, but if I asked you, what is the stuff of life? What's on your calendar? What did you do yesterday? You might say, well, there's work, there's sleep, there's eating, there's family, kids, parenting, protecting. Go to bed, repeat. That's life. Well, that's also the stuff of Psalms 127 and 128. All those themes are in there. What I want us to see from Psalms 127 and 128 is how God is involved in all that and how we should involve him or see him in those things. Not just in the religious stuff, but everything, especially the day-to-day. Psalm 127, let's read it together, and 128. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And then 128 says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a faithful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots round your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. I'd like to break these two psalms into three chunks this morning. We'll start rather small and tightly focused at the beginning, and then as we progress through these psalms, we'll widen the scope and pick up the pace the more we get into it. The first section is just in two verses in Psalm 127. 
our responsibility and God's sovereignty in four different pictures. You see that? Now, this thing of our responsibility and God's sovereignty might be something you've thought about before, where one begins, the other one ends. When any one thing happens, you might wonder, who affected that? Me or God? And what's the relationship between those two? That takes some thick theological work to think through the relationship of those two doctrines. And so you may have wandered down that path before and then quickly retreated because it's just too thorny, it's just too thick, it's too heavy, it's mysterious. So you go about life thinking that somehow God's sovereign, somehow I'm responsible. I don't know how the two really meet. I know sometimes I'm going to tap into one and other times I'm going to live like the other. But that's not what we have here in Psalm 127. The first picture of our responsibility in God's sovereignty is one of building. Verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Now, our building, our laboring, is assumed here in this verse. It's a reality that people build, that a house needs building, and humans build it, that there's labor to be done. It's a responsibility. But like the Tower of Babel, it doesn't matter how hard you work, it doesn't matter how clever your builders are or how many they are in number, it may be in vain, it may be empty, it may be worthless, it may be nothing. You see, the Lord must be doing something in the process. The building must be a greater building than we can build efforts are not just simply in our minds and muscles. He must cause it. He must allow it to come to pass. Now, in technical terms, we call this concurrence or compatibilism. Probably most of you have not used those words in the last year. Concurrence or compatibilism. What it means is that these two doctrines of our responsibility and God's sovereignty run concurrently or that they're compatible, not in competition. You put it this way, human decisions and God's sovereignty work in a mysterious harmony and neither is threatened by the other. Neither one cancels out the other. Now, on the one hand, we make decisions, genuine decisions, and we have real responsibility, and there are consequences for our decisions. On the other hand, God is sovereign, and he's not just sovereign over the big stuff, like who you marry, where you live, or when you die. According to the Bible, God is sovereign over when a sparrow falls to the ground. He's also sovereign over when a hare falls to the ground, even if all of them are now gone. God is sovereign. We humans are not all-powerful. We have a genuine will, we have genuine responsibility, but our wills are not determinative. I can't say, I will be president, or I will run the fastest quarter mile in the world. I have limits. Yes, we, in various ways, build the house. Sometimes a literal house, sometimes this is just building something at work, sometimes it's building Legos with your kids. We all do various kinds of building. And that building means that we plan well or we work hard, that we're skillful at it, that we try to improve. 
And sometimes our building goes awry and there are human explanations for it. You can say, well, you don't know anything about buildings. Or that's built on a bad foundation. Or something like that. But sometimes there isn't an explanation for why our good and hard efforts don't pan out. It's God. We're not naturalists. We're not deists. We believe there's another realm. We believe there is a capital M mover behind everything. We believe that God affects things that we simply can't. Now, many times we don't know why he stops this dead in its tracks, why he blows on this and it just goes. We don't know. But we can say that there are times when we plan and the Lord overrides those plans. Proverbs 16.9 says it so clearly. The heart of man plans his way. We make various plans, but the Lord orders his steps. The Lord overrides at times. You also see this in James 4. There, James unpacks this in a, in a very interesting way. Verse 13 of James 4, he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and we'll spend a year there and we'll trade and we'll make a profit. It all sounds very sure. Best laid plans of mice and men. Yet, James says, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. And he starts with just big picture stuff. I mean, what's your life? Forget the little details. You don't know that you'll be there a year. You don't know that you'll even make it there. Your life's a mist. It appears for a little while and then it vanishes. You may die before the year's up. You may die before you move to that city. Not to mention you may not make a profit. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And then he tells us how serious this is to make plans as if the Lord isn't bigger than them. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. It's a boasting. It's an arrogant boasting to say, I will do this and this and this. Here's the time. Here's what I'll do, how I'll make it. And we don't say if the Lord wills. That's building. The second picture in Psalm 127 is one of guarding. Once you already have it, you need someone to watch over it. It says in verse 1, Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now, you need watchmen to protect a city, just like you need a military to protect a, a country, like you need policemen to protect a city. You can imagine in these, in these Bible times, a man on guard on the city wall, watching and watching the horizon for an army to encroach. It's his job to watch, and you need him there, and you need him to stay awake. It's a good thing that he stays awake. He's got to see. And yet, them being awake, the watchman being alert, being able, that stuff isn't definitive. You take the strongest men, you put them on the best corners, the most alert, vigilant men guarding a city, And that doesn't dictate that the outcome of that night's watch will end in peace. There might be war. Because something else is happening behind the scenes. Because man is not omnipotent, sovereign, all-wise, and in control. 
In Psalm 124, we hear David say this. Look over at Psalm 124. It's probably just a page over in your Bibles. Here's David, the mighty king warrior who slew his tens of thousands. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, join with me in this chorus, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, they would have swallowed us up alive. There's an explanation for that victory, and that victory, and that victory. Not David's leadership, not David's military skills. Well, that's part of the equation, but something else is going on. There's something else going on when there's victory, when there's, well, these Old Testament war stories, where God was pleased to, to only use a small army for his people, to go up against a mighty heathen nation, and he used a small army a few different times so that it would be clear that it was the Lord who had won it for him. Or Joshua, how about this? March around the walls until they fall down. Remember young David slaying the giant Goliath, probably a 10-foot tall dude? And he slays him with only a slingshot. It must have been lucky. That's it. That's the analysis of that story, right? He's lucky. Or maybe David has just such pure, unadulterated skill. He can always hit giants in the middle of the forehead and kill them. Or maybe David has some skills and the Lord is with him, right? You can't help but see the Lord is behind it. The Lord is in it regardless of David's skill. So our protection is not determined merely on a human level. Psalm 33 says, The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. The horse doesn't determine the little battle, neither chariots or tanks or nuclear bombs. That's part of the equation. On one level, that's true. But there's another realm. There's a God who's on a throne What makes your home secure? We lock our doors every night. We have a 100-pound Rottweiler. I have a shotgun. I'm very tough, too. (laughs) One of those things isn't true. (laughs) But of those things that are true, none of them are definitive. I have a feeling if some guy broke into our home, our, our dog would bark loudly and then run away and pee. Thankfully, we haven't found out yet. I have a shotgun, but I don't know where the shells are. It's buried in an inch of dust. I'm sure I would not get it out in time if someone broke into our house. Now, that doesn't mean we don't care about safety. Sure, get your dog or a shotgun or a security system. Make sure you lock your doors. Don't be stupid. But you can't affect this world's peace and comfort, not your own and not others, not completely. And by the way, these principles of building and guarding are not just for homes and individuals and families. The same principle is true for your work, your business. You can work hard. You can put in the hours. You may be the most clever guy in your field. It doesn't guarantee success. If the Lord wills, we will do this and that. 
unless the Lord builds it. It's also true not just of businesses and individuals and families, but governments and nations. Unless the Lord builds the nation, unless the Lord guards the nation. Oh, you might have that guy leading it, these people over here deciding things for it. They may or may not be wise, and the Lord may or may not be in it. And sometimes he's not in it even when they're righteous. Sometimes he lets it go even when they're unrighteous. It's also true for churches. Unless the Lord builds the church, those of us who labor in it, we labor in vain. We expect God to do things that we can't do. We can't get into hearts. We can't settle disagreements on a heart level apart from the Spirit of God at work in our hearts to bring conviction, to bring repentance, to bring peace. We ask God to do things that only he can do, and that's his plan for the church, that it would be an institution of things that only he can do. And praise the Lord, he often works way beyond what our efforts or our wisdom would warrant. Sometimes he builds a city far beyond the architect's cleverness or the craftsman's skill. Sometimes he builds a church ten times what would be warranted by the people involved and their, their efforts in it. There's a third picture here, verse 2, sleeping. It says, it is vain that you rise up early and go go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Notice this is a third vain thing. It's trusting in the cut of sleep in order to work harder and to get more done. It's as if your work was the only factor in seeing something accomplished, in seeing something happen, in seeing something remain yours and sustained. Now, this isn't the only thing the Bible says about sleep. Proverbs, for instance, confronts slothfulness over and over and over again. So Psalm 127, verse 2 here, that can't be taken as a license for loving sleep, never setting an alarm clock, simply being hedonistic with your sleep habits. That's not what Psalm 127 is encouraging. In fact, Psalm 127, verse 1, assumes that the watchmen are supposed to stay awake at night. It's what they do. You're supposed to get up to build the city. The Psalms also elsewhere acknowledge that there are some nights or some seasons where there's some sleeplessness going on. Some of it can be purposeful. So in Psalm 119, you see sleep sacrificed for Bible and prayer, communion with God. The psalmist there seems to love the quietness, the solitude of the night hour. And perhaps he's even disciplining himself to get up and take advantage of that quiet hour in the night or very early morning. He's sacrificing sleep to do that. Proverbs commends early rising for good work. So the Proverbs 31 woman, it says she rises while it's still dark and her lamp doesn't go out at night. But some sleeplessness, according to the book of Psalms, springs from hard circumstances. These people are against me. There's this trouble over here. 
You see that a lot in the Psalms. But you also see the psalmist pray at those times. It's not just, I can't sleep, period, next psalm. It's, I can't sleep, and then it's a prayer. It's a prayer to God. It's asking God to work. It's asking God to help, and not least to help trust him, and not least help return to peace and sleep. You see, some psalms show us very clearly that the ideal is not sleeplessness even in the midst of turmoil. That the ideal is confident trust and peaceful sleep. They go together. Ideally, they go together. Like Psalm 3. Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 are both sleep psalms. Psalm 3, 5, and 6 says, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. We sang this last week. I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have set themselves against me. I can lay down asleep even with chaos and war going on around me because the Lord's in it. The Lord sustained me. I can trust him to protect me even while I sleep. Psalm 4 verse 8 says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So sleep is like this symbol for trust and peace. So sleeplessness that's not planned may be symptomatic of ungodly worry. It may be that you're not casting your burdens on the Lord, and that's why you get up at three every night. It may be that there's certain nights of the week where you are up because of what happened the day before. You can predict it like clockwork. Perhaps you're not being anxious for nothing, but instead with thanksgiving, And prayer, making your request known to God, like Philippians 4 says. Cutting sleep on purpose may also be symptomatic of a problem, symptomatic of self-reliance. Now, let me acknowledge the irony, even possible hypocrisy, of me telling you all this. Because in general, I don't sleep very well at, at all. Most nights, I'm up in the middle of the night. So I'm always trying to think through what's going on there. You know, how much of it is physiological? Is there some part of it that's spiritual? Am I worrying when I get up? What am I thinking about as I get up? Is that an opportunity for me to cast my burdens on the Lord again when I'm awake in the middle of the night? Or rehearse worries, burdens, and maybe even in my head try to solve things? So I fight that. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that exactly, and I keep fighting it. Some of my sleeplessness is purposeful. Last night I got about five hours of sleep. That's pretty common for Saturday night to Sunday morning. I do several hours of sermon prep on Sunday morning. It's just part of my MO. Every preacher has their own oddities for sermon preparation, their own special sauce for how they do it. Uh, I don't know anyone else that does it quite like I do with getting up super early on Sunday morning. But I'm a morning person, and a lot of pastors do do some sermon prep on Saturday night. I could never do that. My brain just doesn't work past dinner. So I get up early. Now, I don't think I'm ignoring Psalm 127, verse 2, when I wake up early on Sunday morning to prepare and work on, uh, not, not just, I should clarify, I don't just prepare on Sunday morning. I prepare earlier as well, but I Put, put a cherry on top on Sunday morning. It's not a very pretty cherry sometimes, but it's, that's what it is. 
Now, here's where I do ignore Psalm 127, verse 2. Here's what it looks like when I do that. It means successive nights of cutting sleep in order to get more done. It means ignoring bodily signs that I'm not getting enough sleep. It means rolling the dice, consciously rolling the dice, thinking, "Eh, I might get sick, I might not, I hope I don't. Keep going. It means rolling the dice about ticking off my wife that I haven't been home for a breakfast in a week. I'm ignoring Psalm 127 verse 2 when I'm not remembering what sleep means, why God gave it. Sleep teaches us a few things. It teaches us first and foremost that we're not God because we must sleep and he doesn't. We must sleep. It's amazing how fragile and weak and, I don't know, unsustaining we are. You skip one night of sleep and you're useless the next day if you can stay up all night and if you can make it through the whole next day without taking a nap. You're useless. I am too. But our God isn't like that. He's self-sustaining. He's ever vigilant, always awake. He doesn't sleep. Psalm 121 says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And Isaiah 40 says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he doesn't become weary or tired. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Our sleep reminds us of our helplessness, It reminds us of our utter dependence. Sleep, rightly understood, should be humbling to those who want to do things for the Lord. We can't sustain ourselves. We need recharging. It's amazing. He could have made it differently. God could have made our bodies like the sun. The sun doesn't take a time out. It doesn't get plugged in. It just keeps going. Oh, I know, a billion years from now or something, it'll burn out. But it's going. It's a nuclear reactor. Not us. He made us for one-third of our lives to curl up in a ball and drool, (laughs) make weird noises, get stinky, messy hair. And then you wake up in... You slowly ease out of it, right? You rub the crust out of your eyes. You slowly stand on your feet because knees hurt and ankles don't work. I'm finding out. The older I get. He could have made us differently, but he made us with all this to give us this powerful daily reminder that we're needy and he's not, that we're the ones who get and he's the one who gives. And cutting sleep doesn't change that. It may for a time try to ignore the fact that he's God and we're not. But it's just for a time. Ironically, it will eventually come back to us in spades. With a cold that puts you on your back for a few days. Or cancer that puts you in the hospital for a year. No shortcuts. We're not God. But it's not just that he makes us sleep, and it's not just that he gives us sleep as a good gift. He gives 
and works even while we sleep. That's probably how verse 2 should be translated. The ESV says, he gives to his beloved sleep. And that's certainly true. God gives sleep like he gives food, like he gives kids, like he gives provision. It's a gift from God. But verse 2 could be translated and probably should. He gives to his beloved in his sleep. Even while we sleep, he's working, he's giving, he's protecting, he's sustaining. He's doing when you're doing nothing. John Piper says, God handles the world quite nicely while a hemisphere sleeps. Sleep is like a broken record that comes around with the same message every day. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. God is not nearly so impressed with our late nights and early mornings as he is with the peaceful trusts that casts all anxieties on him and sleeps. Most of us in this room need more sleep as a discipline of trusting God and as a symbol that we're not relying on self. There's a fourth picture here. It's sandwiched right there in the middle of all the sleep stuff. In verse 2, eating. Eating the bread of anxious toil. Now this phrase implies the importance, subtly it implies, the importance of the family meal. It's showing us what the family meal shouldn't be. Notice there's a contrast between verse 2 and what we read in Psalm 128. In Psalm 128, it's not eating the bread of of anxious toil, it's eating the fruit of your hand. It's with your fruitful wife. It's with your children around your table. And all this is represented to us as being blessed and happy and peaceful and right. So Psalm 127 paints the sad picture of bread that was garnered through anxious toil, sweat of the brow, And worry about it. And now as it's placed before the psalmist here on the table, it's like bitter bread. It was anxious when he was earning it. It's anxious now while he's eating it. Anxious eating. It should be an oxymoron. Maybe that looks like eating fast. Maybe it looks like eating with a furrowed brow. Maybe that looks like eating with your mind someplace else. You see, it's communal here, isn't it? It's celebratory. That's what the meal, that's what the table in the, all, all the Bible is, is really representing. Eating the bread of anxious toil. What Psalm 127 says about sleep and what it says about dinner may also apply to other parts of the evening. Maybe you go to bed early enough. Maybe you're fully there with the kids and your spouse at dinner time. But maybe in between, there are three to four hours of cranking out emails or a glow on your face from Facebook looking back at you. We need to be able to say, I've put in a hard, full day. I'm going to leave this now, it'll be there tomorrow. And I need to trust the Lord for it. I don't, I don't know what that looks like in your home. I don't know that every one of us can or should say, from 5 p.m. till bedtime, I don't do anything. Chances are you got more stuff to do than that. But 
we can't be mindless about this either. And we certainly can't look to the culture. I know too many families for whom kids' sports occupies almost every single night of the week during dinner time. I just wonder, what's, what's a dinner table look like in that case? It's always on the run. It's always going, going, going. When do you sit and see olive trees around your table, these children, this wife, and a fruitful vine in your home? You see, we need to rest. And we shouldn't be strangers, this thing of rest, we Christians. Because God doesn't reward simply in accordance with our hard work. We shouldn't be strangers to that reality. We should know it because it's the crux of what we believe. It's what we call the gospel. That in Jesus we rest. We are resting people. Yes, we're working people, but we work in light of this rest that we have in Jesus resting from our work because he's covered our sins, because he's freely given us his righteousness. That's our hope. That's our only hope. And then that frees us to do work and sometimes hard work. You see, I think building the house gets some fresh and big motivation when you know the Lord builds it. You can kind of go at it with with some reckless abandonment when you know it doesn't ride completely on you. He has to be in it. He'll decide whether you need it. He'll protect you. It's not just according to your watch. He's protected you in the gospel. Well, I said we would narrow in and focus a lot on the first couple of verses at first, and then we'll, we'll widen the scope and move more quickly through the rest of this. So the second section of these two psalms could be a case in point, children and parenting. That's the rest of Psalm 127. It begins, verse 3, with, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. I think what this is saying is that kids are proof that God gives. In other words, one of life's greatest blessings, kids come not by buying them or working to get them, but by an amazing display of God's power and his, his creative nature that he can turn a seed into a baby. That's his doing. Oh, I know we play some small part in that, but it's his doing. We can't make that happen. And it's completely natural, but it's also seemingly miraculous that this thing it seems at first becomes a precious gift from the Lord, a heritage from him. I think this is true not just from those who have given birth to their kids, but also for those who've received their kids through adoption. I suspect many families that have gone through an adoption would attest that that path is no less a seeming miracle. And that baby is no less than a gift from God than babies that are carried and born by their mothers. But neither childbirth nor adoption, neither of these things are earned. So a lack of children isn't evidence of some curse. Children are a gift from the Lord, so if he should take them early, it doesn't necessarily mean any kind of punishment. In fact, that's exactly the point of Psalm 127, that we labor, but he must build it, that we stand on watch, but he must guard it, 
His ways are often mysterious. Though he's good and he's wise and he's sovereign and we can bank on those. But he must do it. And proof is the way he gives and works and protects in a city, in a government, in a family, around a table. The way he even gives and protects while we sleep. You see, our supply of food and our safety and even a woman's fertility are not givens in this world. We tend to think that they are. They're not givens in this world. They're proof that we're not God. But it's not just the getting of children that teaches us all this. It's also the raising of children that teaches us something about our responsibility and God's sovereignty. Because children may be gifts, but that sure doesn't mean that they aren't work. They're work. So verse 4 says, they're like arrows in the hand of a warrior. What's that mean? Well, in these days, you didn't go down to big five sporting goods and buy your arrows. You had to make them. You had to shape them. You had to sharpen the tip. There's a responsibility then for parents who have kids. If these kids are like arrows that are meant to be part of this war, then there's a responsibility of parents to shape their kids and to sharpen their kids. Kids do not come out of the womb as perfectly shaped arrows. They come out as crooked sticks. Some of them come out as blocks. Some need more shaping and sharpening than others. But they need shaping and sharpening. That they might be sent off. That's the nature of an arrow, right? You don't just hold it and look at it and look at my arrow. The whole nature of an arrow is that it gets shot. It's supposed to go. And kids are supposed to go. And parents are supposed to let them go. It's supposed to be that they grow up and they become their own men, their own women, that there's a leaving and a cleaving. I know Hallmark wants to tell us differently about the nostalgia of their youthful years. And and boy, I'm I'm as guilty of that as anyone. I love kids and I love little kids. So I already think about three weddings coming up eventually, Lord willing. Really? I'm going to cry. I start crying now thinking about it. But I got to remember... Those are arrows. They're supposed to get sent off. They're supposed to get sent off that they might do damage for the Lord in a good way. They might get sent off to the mission field where it's really dangerous, but arrows are really needed. So now I shape and sharpen and pray and pray the Lord does far better than my shaping and sharpening would warrant. It's a good thing to have them. Verse 5 says, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Now, you may wonder how many arrows make a full quiver. Some people say 8 or 9 or 12, and almost like the implication would be that's how many you should have. But that's not the point, in my opinion, when it says in verse 5, the man who fills his quiver with them is blessed. I think the point is that these are real arrows. That's what we want. We want real arrows that are worth putting in a quiver, not just leaving on the nightstand or on the workbench. In verse 5, it also says, he shall not be put to shame, this dad, 
when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. What does that mean? Well, the gate in this context would have been something legal. It would have been like when he's at the bench or when he's on the stand. He's in trouble with the law and his kids will come and ensure that he's not shamed. They'll testify for their dad. In later years, there'll be ones who sing his praises. Then we come to this last section, which is the whole of Psalm 128. Here we see a portrait of a happy and humble home. A happy and humble home. Here's what it should look like. Psalm 127 at the beginning told us what it shouldn't look like with sleep and work and and what we trust and all that. Then the second half told us about children. They're a perfect example of how you must trust the Lord and yet be responsible for their shaping and sharpening and sending off. Now we get sort of a, a snapshot of what it looks like in the day in, day out life of this home if it's the Lord's. Notice some of the emotion of Psalm 128. Three different times in the Hebrew, it's four times in the ESV, in the English, you see the word blessed. It means happy. A different word for happy is also used in verse 2. And then you have also in verse 2, it's speaking of life being well with you, it being good for you. Verse 5 talks about prosperity which doesn't necessarily mean a certain level of income and and wealth, but it means just overall goodness. Even more is that word peace in verse 6, shalom, overall peace, peace in every direction. So Psalm 128 speaks of a family where there's blessedness and happiness. It's well with them. There's prosperity, goodness, and peace. And of course, hopefully you've already seen the essential ingredient here. That's how the psalm begins. Verse 1, it says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. And that's repeated again in verse 4. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Now what's this mean, to fear the Lord? Well, it's not dread. It's not utter terror. But neither is it just respect. Something more. It's what we might call holy awe. Sinclair Ferguson says, Fear of God is that indefinable mixture of reverence, fear, pleasure, joy, and awe, which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he's done for us. They all go together. It's a mix of emotions, undefinable mix of emotions. This fear of the Lord is not unrelated to his mercy. You see, you can stand in awe of his mercy, this mercy that cost nothing less than the blood of the innocent son of God. He died on our behalf. In light of that mercy, we stand in awe, which means we smile and we tremble at the same time. After the resurrection, when the disciples first saw that empty tomb, Matthew 28 says they had fear and great joy. Fear and great joy. Our homes should have a fear of the Lord and a great joy in the Lord. Notice some specifics here of this happy, humble home. 
Verse 2, you shall eat of the fruit of your labor. Now, Psalm 127, after that, you might think it's inappropriate to talk of your labor because it's all the Lord's doing. But no. Now, in light of the fact that the Lord builds, you can work hard, come home, and say, this is good. Oh, of course, it's the Lord's doing. It's a gift from him, this food we eat. But we all know that turkey dinners don't just drop out of the ceiling. They don't just show up like magic. The Lord gives by providing work. The Lord uses providence to show us and give us what we need. But whatever we have, we eat it. We eat it not like it's the bread of anxious toil. It's the fruit of our labor in light of the Lord's doing. So it is with a wife. Verse 3, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. What's that mean? Well, the fruitful vine would be a a symbol of, of refreshment, of lavished enjoyment. Really, the vine and the fruit of the vine is a symbol of wine. So coming home to a good wife something like coming home to good old wine, like coming home to a harvest's plenty, like coming home to a happy feast. Wine makes the, glad, the heart glad, it says in the Psalms. And no doubt, a good wife does the same and more so. The children, verse 3, they'll be like olive shoots around your table. What's that mean? Well, olive plants take a long time to mature. And when they finally do, they're worth a lot because they keep producing an abundant crop. Your kids will be like olive plants around your tree. They're just perhaps budding right now. Perhaps they don't even look like olive plants yet. But one day, by God's grace, maybe there'll be olive shoots around your table, an abundant crop full of richness and goodness. Oh, I know it's a little more chaotic than all this sounds. This sounds very idyllic, doesn't it? Wife like a vine, children like olive plants at your table. Olive plants don't talk too much. (laughs) Olive plants don't spill milk. Olive plants don't fight with olive plants. It's a deal. Where do I get an olive plant kid? We might wonder that, but you know, the Lord is in that too. Obviously, it's painting an idealism here, but really it's helping us understand what is going on. They are pre-olive plants, and they need grooming. Just like they're potential arrows. They need shaping. They need sharpening. That may be painful for them and for you. And even in the midst of all the chaos, we... We try to see what the Lord sees. We try to see what's really going on, what's really at stake. And we fight for obedience and joy. And we fight for peace and harmony. And we trust him to really do it. So what's the difference between futility and fruitfulness? It's the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord doesn't mean we've earned God's blessings like some kind of quid pro quo exchange. Fear of the Lord certainly doesn't mean a certain level or a certain kind of God's material blessings. You see, fruitfulness doesn't mean a certain level of riches or ease. 
Look down at Psalm 128. Just let your eyes glance over these verses, especially the verse, first four. Do you notice that Psalm 128 could be describing a wealthy or rather meager home? There is nothing in Psalm 128 that says, these folks are middle upper. These folks, they fear the Lord, and they don't eat hamburger, they only eat steak. They can eat out whenever they want. Oh, there's nothing like that there. Yeah, that's not futility. Real futility is not when we work hard and to the Lord and barely make ends meet. That's just called life. For most of us, that's just life. Real futility is lived out as though God were not there in any part of it. Because it's easy to think he's there on Sunday morning. He's there when I open my Bible and I read on Monday morning. I I know he's there. But do we live another corner of our lives out like he's not there? Jobs. He's not there. It's riding on me. Real futility is where I seek to determine my my own outcome based on my strengths and my work and my sacrifice and I don't pray. Real futility is when we sacrifice God's best and most profound gifts like home and sleep and family and sex and children and meals and an honest day's work and fear of the Lord and his commandments. So Christians, let us shirk all self-sufficiency, self-reliance. Let us learn to hate all false, God-mimicking, glory-robbing ways, which are all perfectly acceptable in our culture and often in our church. Let us make families. Let us make families and fill the earth to God's glory. Let us shape our kids in God's ways and shoot them off like arrows for God's purposes. Let us feel our inadequacies as we do that. And let us pray much for his help. And let's pray for things that only God can do. Not just that they stay off drugs or don't get a girl pregnant or something, but let's pray for God to do a miraculous, saving, glory-filled work in their hearts that far exceeds any joy or worship in the Lord that you've ever known. Let's pray lofty prayers for our kids. Let's do our work unto the Lord, not unto men. Let's trust him for provision. Let's not serve money. Let's eat like only Christians can eat. Ecclesiastes 9, 7 says, Go your way, eat your bread, drink your wine with a merry heart, for your deeds are accepted. Only Christians can eat like they're forever forgiven and finally accepted. Let us sleep like only Christians can sleep. Oh, I know, I I don't sleep well. But when I do sleep well, I sleep like a Christian. And I'm reminded that this is a little picture of resting in him. It's a little picture of the new heaven and the new earth where we get there in, it says, Revelation 21, and there will be rest. Let's love our wives, men. 
like Christ loved the church. Let's celebrate their beauty and vitality like wild vines in our home. Ladies, let's make the home happy and sweet like festive wine. Let us all fear the Lord. Fear the Lord who died in our place, who did something so awesome on our behalf that the only fitting response is both to shout and smile and tremble and fall on our knees. Let us look to him for everything. Let's see everything we have as a gift from him that we don't deserve. And let's see him in everything. Let's see him in our work and in our money and in our, our banking, our recreations, our dinners, our kids, our friendships, our marriages. Let us see him in all. He's the Lord, and there's none besides him. Or I think we can psalm up these two psalms with two other short passages. Let me just read these, and we'll be done. Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? The Gentiles, the unbelieving Gentiles, seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you.